Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. He had had no further intercourse with spirits, <laughs> but lived upon the total abstinence principle there afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us, all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. And that's our episode on Charles Dickens, everybody. <laughs> Did there need to be two sexual references right off the bat in that sentence? Like, honestly, intercourse and abstinence, right, you couldn't yeah. find better words? Uh, I, hey, uh, just so you guys are aware, I am no longer having intercourse with spirits. With spirits, just, just with wanted spirits. to be clear, I'm intercourse with spirits abstinent. <laughs> Perfect, except that's a lie. Me? Yeah. Why? Uh, Because of the Holy Spirit? Oh, no. I mean, have you given up whiskey? (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, I'm on antibiotics, so I'm not drinking at the moment. Oh, okay. So it was uh, a forced uh, abstinence. Well, it's not even forced. I I could technically drink, but I'm trying not to just because I... So I had had six teeth removed, and, uh, and it hurts a lot. So I'm motivated to not fuck with my healing in any way. Well, that's good. Yeah, I cannot tell um, that you had six teeth removed. Yeah. So that's a good sign you don't sound like that kid who was really high in the backseat of his mom's car. Is this real life? Yes, that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got like, so like there used to be this little baby tooth in the front here and that's gone. Um, So I'm pretty happy about that. That's been like a thing in my mouth since I was born. You're no longer a shark. Yeah. I don't just lose teeth whenever I bite into steak now. It's the weirdest thing. Damn. (laughs) Charles Dickens, everybody. Welcome to Between (laughs) Lewis and Lovecraft. Charles Dickens, everybody. Um, Man, we got a lot to talk about with this guy. We do. And uh, I'm super glad that Tyler read like what seems like a very cool biography because I actually did not read a biography for this one. I wanted to read Oliver Twist instead because I'd never actually read anything by Dickens. Somehow made it through four years of high school English classes with no Dickens. Oh, really? So I just did a compilation of like various scholarly articles and whatnot to do my outline. So I'm glad that you've got more in-depth stuff. Yeah, the guy that... So I read The Mystery of Charles Dickens by A.N. Wilson, not Ann Wilson. Ann Wilson. Ann Wilson. (laughs) Ann Wilson. Um, No, The Mystery of Charles Dickens. And basically he goes into kind of the duality of of Dickens and like um he he wasn't it wasn't that he was mysterious as much as he wasn't forthcoming with a lot of his life events and so this guy kind of it wasn't so much a a, a biography as much as a um conversation about the biographies that have revealed things about him interesting yeah yeah cuz Dickens was a very 
not complicated, but he did have that duality where like everyone kind of thought of him at the time as this pillar of morality or whatever. And then mm-hmm. later on, you're like, oh, never mind. He did some stuff, too. Yeah, he did a lot of weird shit. Uh, he was he was uh, Charles Dick also. Um, and uh, but but then at the same time, he did do a lot of good things. Yeah. And he did have a spirit of uh, charity. And so that's. That's the big thing that I'm dealing with while I'm diving. Because, like, last year we got into Mr. James, and there was no redeeming <laughs> quality about Mr. James. Everything was terrible about him, including his writing. So yeah. I didn't even feel conflicted uh, about that Despite one. the one iTunes comment that says otherwise, you know, we didn't we didn't just go out of our way to, to bag on this guy. He just wasn't a good person. Um, but, I mean, that I just... That's just Mr. James, but and then like like Lovecraft, like he was a he was a pretty bad person, but his writing was really good, right? Yeah. And so that's the that's where I can kind of compartmentalize that is I don't like him as much. I don't try to be like Lovecraft. I just like his writing. He, he his writing is amazing, and then and then uh, you know Lewis. I I think he's great all around. Decent There's person the, all around. Just nothing about him that I'm like. Ugh, I don't like that. I mean, he's kind of weird about women, but he, everybody has their flaw, so I can get over it. His writing and his personality was all good. Dickens is so weird because he's a good guy, but he's also not a good person. Yeah, he has some weird, like, hypocritical things that he does later on in his life that I'm just like, bruh, you kind of wrote about this. How How could you do this? Not only did you write about it, but you were doing some weird shit while you were doing public speaking about the writings that you were writing about doing the good stuff. Yep. So very, very uh, two-faced, very hypocritical, um, and I would also say uh, struggled with some stuff. I, I think that there's legitimacy in his um, two-facedness. Not that it excuses it. I just there's a reason behind some of that. Yeah. It didn't come out of the blue. Yeah. So, so. My, I guess I'm just doing my sermon up at the top. You're, Normally, this we're happens you a at little the teaser end. of what to expect from this yeah. episode. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we're we're doing a two part where we're focusing on his life on this episode. We'll probably talk a little bit more about a Christmas Carol itself. Yeah, because that's kind of interesting, just in and of itself. How. Like how when it came out, yeah. It was. So yeah. we'll kind of we'll mention it, of course, because you can't talk about his life without it. But um, we'll probably get more into the specifics of that in our next episode. Yeah. Uh, okay. But yeah, in the meantime, uh, we got to rewind this to eighteen twelve. Yeah, very we're going long back time to ago. Pipe, uh, pi- um, pipe smoke, smoking, smoke chimney London. cleaners running around on the rooftops and. And uh, uh, gooses being cooked in fat above a fire. I um, the hearth. I want to see all of the movies that you're gleaning your <laughs> 1800s uh, England information from. Muppets Christmas Carol. It is all Muppets Christmas Carol. Oh my god! <laughs> it's the greatest version of a Christmas Carol ever made. Argue with me. That's for the next episode. Okay. <laughs> so, regardless of what the uh, smoke pillars were smoking back then, uh, Charles John Huffam Dickens, which is such a British name, was born on February 7th, 1812, in Portsmouth, which is on the southern coast of England. He was the second of eight children, the oldest boy. Uh, but back in those days, you know, 
kids didn't live that long. So two of his siblings died young. So second yeah. of six children then. What, is, what was the life expectancy? It was like 30 years at that point. Right? Probably not great, yeah. And then like I think it was like six out of ten children lived. So, I mean, they had a pretty good pretty good rate. No. They only lost two out of nine. That's – oh, okay. <laughs> Them compared to the world. Yes, yes. They did a good job. Yeah. Well job, done, Dickens John. Family. You didn't kill four of your children compared to the rest of the world. <laughs> so his father, John Dickens, was a naval clerk, which basically means he guarded a safe and handed out paychecks. Uh, his mom, I don't know if she ever achieved her goal of being a school teacher, but I saw that she wanted to be a teacher. So good oh, job, okay. Elizabeth Barrow, for having goals. Yeah. Um. But dad's Navy job moved them around a lot in the early years, so they lived in several different places in his um, early adolescence. John also was one of those guys who dreamed of striking it rich and as such spent well beyond his means. Is This this is a common theme. Yeah. Who was the other author that uh, his dad had that problem? Uh, was it Melvin Her- Her- Herman, Herman Melville? Melville? Yeah. Did Twain's dad have that problem too? Did he? I can't. It might have just been Melville, but yeah, yeah. this was uh, not an There's, abnormality. I mean, it happens to a lot of. I mean, I, you could say like Lovecraft's dad. He was like a salesman, mm-hmm. so he was always trying to sell the next big thing until he sold his soul to syphilis and <laughs> died of being an insane person. It's like uh, the sex ed talk in Mean Girls: <laughs> Don't have sex, sex or you will get, get syphilis and, and die. die. Yeah. Um. That, I feel like there was someone else too, though. But yeah, yeah I mean, definitely I, Melvin Herman Melville. And that's a common thing now too. I mean, everybody's like, "Oh, I'm going to be totally rich. Let's buy things that I would buy then now." Yeah. Um, but his dad did have like the kind of unique view at the time, like given the social structure that anybody, even if you were poor, could work your way up sure. and become wealthy, and he kind of like instilled that in his children, which would go on to influence Charles later on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that totally wasn't common. Uh, opinion at the time when you had such rigid social um like divides right and i mean being poor is always a good motivator to stop being poor (laughs) so their family was poor like they were not doing well almost ever for most of it no um in 1816 when charles was about four they moved to chatham i hope i'm saying that right kent chatham which was kind of like the countryside um, and so Dickens and his siblings were free to roam around, get into all sorts of outdoor mischief. Um, but he also, in his childhood, spent quite a bit of time reading. Mm. Shocking, right? Yeah, a writer that <laughs> reads. It's crazy. Um, and there was at one point while they were living there that John Dickens um, pointed out a mansion known as Gad's Hill Place to his son and used that as kind of like the illustration for how, you know, even you, Charles, even though we're kind of poor, you could grow up to own that mansion one day. Mm. And that stuck with him, which yep. we'll get to later. Um, I don't. Did you have much in your biography from his early years? Mine kind of just like everything I found moved up to when he was a teenager pretty quickly. Or um, there was there was a lot of talk about where like the neighborhood that he was living in. Uh, I think in the Camden town where he was like right next to the workhouse, mm. um, which is basically a prison. Yeah, and that really. He started to see the the prison system within London and within England very early on. And so that influenced a lot of his writing. And that's why you see a lot of the prison systems in his writing. Um, 
and and so like so the the author of mine was talking about how um i mean he was like basically next door Mm -hmm. to this to this place where other children like he's free to go off and do what he wants other children are like forced to work in these like in these labor not camps because that sounds bad uh something else a labor building i guess um and and so like that really stuck with them Right, so they moved to Camden Town, which was like the poor part of London, um, when he was 10. And at that point, their financial situation was already pretty bad. Like, at some points during his childhood, his dad had enough money to, like, send him to private school for a few months, but Mm -hmm. it never really stuck. So when they moved there, um, he quit school, Charles did, and started working at a blacking factory, which I guess, like, blacking is the substance that was used to clean fireplaces, and his job was just to glue labels on pots of it all nice. day long. Yeah. So that's super fun child labor. So I was right. There are chimney cleaners. There are chimney, yeah, <laughs> chimney sweeps. Um, the one upside to being in London, though, was that he was exposed to theater for the first time, which inspired him to yeah, perform, ah. right, to perform plays with his siblings, and he dreamed of one day becoming an actor. Yeah, like they would, they would straight up like pimp him out to to do plays for family members and people during parties like yeah, he would I, like write entire tragedies and things that uh like his dad would be like all right at the next family event you're going to perform this tragedy in front of the family it's it'll be a great time <laughs> good time was had by all <laughs> but yeah i i was reading that like he would jump up on the table and get super into it which mm-hmm would be a little startling. I would tell my kid to get off the freaking table, but whatever. <laughs> Charles, get down. No, get down. I don't care if you want to be ep- Epidus. I don't know. I don't know any classical. <laughs> you were going for like a Greek thing. Yeah, I, I was going for that. Greek. And did would he have done Greek? He would have done some Greek, right? Probably. You can't do theater without doing some Greek theater, right? Nah. Yeah. So, yeah, they have the best tragedies. Yeah. So around the same time, uh, 1824, when he was about 12, his dad was sent to a debtor's prison. And there it is. Yep. The money troubles just kept piling on. Um, and the thing that I didn't realize happened back in the day was that pretty much the whole family had to go with him yeah, because there you, was nowhere else for them to live. Do you uh, do you get what a debtor's prison is? Do you get it? Well, you go there and you're supposed to be there until you pay off your debt. But how are you supposed to pay off your debt when you're in prison? You right. can't work. So yeah. you have to like you have to try and get family to to pay off your debt. You're basically a hostage. Yeah. Like, that's insane. I would have been in in debtor's prison so long ago. It would have been awful. Yeah, so Charles, 12 years old, is like the only member of his family not chilling in prison with his dad. Uh, And the only reason he was able to stay out, basically, was because they had a family friend who rented him a single room. Mm. Um, And he kept working, but there was no way he was ever going to save up enough at his, like, label pasting (laughs) job to bail his family out of prison. So, um... It happened to be good luck that about a year later, his father inherited some money um, from, like, his mom or something, mm. and the family was freed. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mom, they- for dying <laughs> and getting me out of prison. So well, glad. my 12-year-old was, like, working his fingers to the bone trying to- It sounds like hell. It's- like, it sounds awful. Yeah. To, to be stuck somewhere until family takes enough mercy on you. I don't know, man. Maybe yeah. maybe all of the American dream is debtor's prison, though. I mean, if you think about it, <laughs> like like you get into debt and you can't buy a house or anything until like you get a co-sign with your parents or some shit, and then like and then you have to just work 
your ass off to get to get out of debt. I'd rather be in that metaphorical debtor pr- debtor's prison than an actual one, though. Yeah. And I think it's funny that like later in his life, Dickens was kind of snobby about Americans. It's like, bruh, do you even was see he? London's condition? Yeah, he like kept criticizing them as like too materialistic and stuff, which oh, is yeah. fair, yeah. but also like. Don't get too high and mighty. Right. Dude. He he also um, had an interesting take on their form of evangelism um, because it was it was different than a, than the English form of evangelism. Shocking! It's like we f- like separated from the yeah. country over this or something. Yeah, I can't remember if he was critical of it or not. I just remember <laughs> there being something where he's like, "Yeah, they're all like fire and brimstone over there." Like you got the the better. The better preacher you are means you'll have more brimstone to throw out to people or something like that. It was it was a pretty interesting little quote about that. So Oh, that kind of holds true today, I feel like, if you're flipping through the uh, church channels nope. or whatever. No, I'm going to oh, go ahead and on. disagree. No, and better pastors and preachers are not better because they have more fire and brimstone. Okay, if by better you mean actually better, then yes. But if better right. you mean, like, drive lots of fancy but, but cars. But back, back in the Wild West... You were a better preacher if you threw more brimstone. Throwing brimstone. You're just throwing it out. Yeah. Whatever. This is getting into yes. a so, whole other conversation. Uh, after they get out of debtor's prison, uh, Charles was able to go back to school for a short time. Didn't hold. Um, and at age 15. No way. A writer who didn't like school? <laughs> it wasn't his fault. <laughs> <laughs> it was his dad's because he couldn't freaking make enough money oh okay i mean in his defense he did have like seven kids but still true um so when he was 15 charles dropped out again to help contribute to his family's income and became a junior law clerk which ended up being a really good job for him uh because he got to observe all these different people coming in and out of the office and Mm -hmm. hear about their problems he would take notes on their appearance and the ways they talked and stuff um, and he would like make up fictional stories about them he also had a penchant for finding humor in dark situations and would frequently laugh about some of the issues clients were complaining about. I have done that. I have done that in a public space, and I have felt terrible about it before. Yep. I, it wasn't clear to me if he, like, laughed at it in front of their faces or just, or like, just like, pri- privately. Like, yeah. I have laughed at someone's misfortune in front of their face on accident. How well did they take it? They did not. They left. <laughs> uh, you work in customer service for so long, you, you start to not care about customers or serving them. <laughs> well, I mean, that's understandable. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, th- and that's interesting because, like, I think uh, I think that's a natural thing for a lot of writers to do. I don't, I don't know if you have ever done an exercise like that oh all the time like i remember back in the days when i was still commuting to work um i would see something interesting like someone interesting on the bus and i would pull out a piece of paper and like jot down notes about what weird thing they were wearing or what they were reading and stuff like that and like my cousin and i we would go to the airport and we would just sit down at one of the cafes and we would like we'd take turns and i'd be like all right that guy and she would write down uh, like a couple paragraphs about like who that guy is and where he's going, where he came from and his story. And then she would do the same to me. And uh, we would just read our, our stories to each other there at the nice. airport. So I think it's, it's, it's a very natural thing for a lot of authors to do that. Right. And I think a lot of authors are naturally drawn to like, even when they're not writing to work environments that kind of 
give them that yeah. creative stimulation mm-hmm. um, where they can observe people. So, yeah, that was a good fit for him. Um, and he stayed there for a few years, I think, before trying to pursue, pursue his dream of becoming an actor. An actor! Which seemed like a very short-lived dream because everything I saw said that he got one audition for a play at age 20, uh, came down with a bad cold right before the audition and missed it, and then never got another chance. You know, I, I don't... Uh, my my book didn't go... It didn't go into uh, such a chronological, like, what he did as an actor or anything. It just touched on the fact that he was very theatrical and he loved the stage. He, he loved theater. Um, and, I mean, that's that's where he'll meet some people that are not super great for his future. Or, I mean, they were great for his future. Maybe not other people <laughs> in his life. I am trying not Anybody to who knows what's coming is <laughs> like, like, oh, uh, I yeah, see. all right, I get it. We should, all right. Laying it on a little yeah. thick, are we? Um, but, but yeah, so like, it, it's not, it's not even that he like tried it and failed and then quit. It's not a Hitler situation with art. Like, <laughs> it's like he loved it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, even if he didn't like achieve his goal of being an actor, um, he was still a part of the world of theater. And e- even later, like, he became such a good, um, like, he he would read his stories to, to audiences. And he was good at it mm-hmm. because he had that theatrical quality to him. And I think that's something he was, like, born with. Because, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, like, he and his siblings were basically doing it from such a young age and right. were so into it that they enthralled the whole family and right. friends and stuff. I think it's probably one of those situations where he is multi-talented and the thing that gives him the most amount the the I I think that Charles Dickens thrived on um very quick return on investment. I I don't there's another term for it, but I don't uh like uh, just quick success or on instant fame. Instant, instant gratification. gratification. Wow, look at yes. that. That's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally see that because like and it seems like he likes doing things that get him right. positive affirmation, which right of course there, we all right do, yeah. but like some people stick it out more through the miserable years yeah. like our last author Frank Herbert. Yeah, who wrote for like his entire life before he actually got a deal, a real deal. Um, but you know, with, with getting up on the table or the stage and doing something, people are there immediately laughing, crying, you know, you know, defying over whatever he's doing. That's what he wants. And writing a novel is not that writing a novel is lonely. It's hard. It's frustrating. And, and the payout sometimes isn't there. It's, it's sometimes you just don't, you don't get what you put into it. Um, and so, so naturally, I think he he wanted to become an actor because that is where he was getting all that instant gratification. Mm-hmm. But I think his talent for telling stories is the underlying th- skill that comes out later um, where he realizes he's better as a writer than he is as a, as an actor. Right. I can see that. Um, so then getting into his writing career in like more midlife, um, in 1833, so he would have been what, like 21, he started submitting sketches to different magazines and newspapers, and he was using a pseudonym, Boz. I have no idea why that was his pseudonym. There was something about like a nickname that he gave to his brother that was like, 
I, I don't remember what the name was, but because his brother couldn't pronounce it properly because he had a lisp where he was young and he couldn't he couldn't say it. The name Boz came out of it. Yeah. And so he liked it so much that when he had to choose a pseudoname, he he just chose that. Perfect. Yeah. So it's a it's a nickname thing. Nice. I like that. Sounds very British too. Balls. Yes, balls is the latest <laughs> review on the debates of council. Quite intriguing. Huh? Pretty that's, good. That's pretty good. Yeah. You sound like a magistrate. You should be wearing a funky white wig or something. Who says I'm not, Hannah? Oh. Everyone could have thought that I was pit, po- poppered face with the white <laughs> and a little dot. The yes. little, <laughs> the little weird, heart like, blushes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm just like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Charles Dickens. All you have to do is just put your bottom lip up to your top teeth. And then just talk through that. Or like, oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk like this, Tyler. It's simple. All you have to do is talk like this. It's perfectly simple. <laughs> Regardless. Okay, accent class is over, y'all. Yeah, there we go. Moving on. Um, So my understanding was that these sketches were kind of like humorous uh, observations of London life. They weren't super serious or political. Like, uh, Not that his other works or later works were serious, but they weren't trying to be like super edgy and change people's minds. Sure. Um, It was more fun. A few years later, his clippings were published in his first book, uh, which was pretty cool for him. Uh, around the same time, he also started freelance reporting for the Morning Chronicle and I believe one other paper. He kind of like went back and forth and he covered many court cases in the House of Commons. So kind of back in that law clerk world, he was getting a behind the scenes look at the justice system in 1800s England, which I'm sure was delightful. So cool. Super, super great and fair. and Yeah. Like if there was one place that I could live and be, well, I'd probably do okay. <laughs> Considering... <laughs> I'm a white, straight male. Well, so was his dad. And look oh, where yeah. He well, ended he ended up in debtor's prison. I'd end up in debtor's prison, too. So me and John Dickens. <laughs> I'd be fine as long as my husband never died, because then I wouldn't be able to work and I'd end up in a women's right. prison. Yeah. Or you'd have to marry his his brother. Oh, I hope his brother's hot. Yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just make you sure marry, all of the You marry siblings. the ugly older one for the money, and then he air quotes, dies mysteriously, and then you end up with the younger, sexy one. Perfect. And you're like, the, it's like the cover of a novel. 1800s and his, life goals. And his shirt's open, and he's got a washboard ab, <laughs> and you've got your hands on it, and you're just like, ah. And he's not at all malnourished, not like I'm sure all. people were in the yeah, 1800s. And his teeth are great. Perf- yes, exactly. <laughs> I think we just wrote a book. We did just write a romance novel. <laughs> um. While he was doing his reporting job, he met Catherine Hogarth because she was the daughter of his editor. And Tyler, you will definitely approve of this because after three months of knowing each other, what did Charles Dickens do? He proposed. He did propose, after Tyler. three months. Three Good months. Good old three-month proposal. Love it so much. <laughs> Nothing ever goes wrong when you do it that way. No. It's totally fine. Look, if you're a kid, if you're a young person listening to our show, first of all, earmuffs. You should not be <laughs> listening to our show. I'm joking. You should be listening to our show because we, we tell it like it is. We tell it like it's real. Don't 
propose to someone after three months. Just don't. Just don't. Whoever's telling you, no, do it because it's your life and you should just live it the way you want. No, <laughs> just don't. Okay? What is the Tyler Clausen approved time period? Because I know we were like criticizing Frank Herbert too, and his was like six months, which still seems very fast. <clears throat> One year. One year? It, at minimum. And look, I get it. You fall in love with someone, you want to spend the rest of your life. Honestly, two years is what you should spend with someone before you propose or marry them. Because there is a there is a well-documented, scientific, uh, proven time period where you are in a honeymoon phase and everything's great. And it is between two weeks and two years. It's different for everybody. I always thought it was like six months. Two weeks to two, to two years? years. You can be done with someone after two weeks. There are people who do it. And that's totally fine. That's that's your personality. If that's who you are, you should know that about yourself and be prepared to have a hard or actually just just have a hard time with relationships because you're going to be bored with people really fast. That was me all of my life until like six months ago. Two weeks to two years. If you can stick it through for two years with somebody, you have shown that you love them. You are committed to them. That's a big one. And that they are the only one that you want to be with. Those are the three little aspects of love, true love that I believe in, which are commitment, wanting to only be with one person, and then finding them attracted, attractive, being attracted to them. Those are three aspects. Charles Dickens is making me talk about my philosophy <laughs> on love because three months is not enough time before you propose to someone and spend the rest of your life with them. Three months, man. Two years. And then you and then you have Tyler Clausen's blessing. You should unless, charge for this advice. Unless the, well, <laughs> Join our Patreon. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you can get more relationship advice. That's going to be one of our Patreon tiers. It will be. Because, like, honestly, y'all, Tyler's the person I text when I need, like, relationship advice. I'm like, hey, you're in a committed relationship with the same person you've been with for, like, 10 plus years. Yeah. 15 years? Uh, we have been, well, so we've been married for almost six years, five and a half years. We were together for eight years before we got married. So I live by my <laughs> by my words. So I was close. Fourteen yeah, years yeah. then. It's it's roundabouts fifteen fifteen years we've been together together. So, so yes. yes. He knows what he's talking about. This is all from Charles Dickens. This is all for, well, we're gonna have more rants about this. So No, I'll try not to be too much. Sorry guys. He and Catherine get married in eighteen thirty six. He's about twenty four. I don't know how old she was. I'm assuming she was like a teenager or something because it's the eighteen hundreds and Yeah, she's she he had to get special permission from the magistrate. Really? To marry her. Yeah, because she was underage. Gross. He married an, an underage girl after three months of knowing her. <laughs> I know. I, it's and this is the eighteen hundreds. How underage did she have to be to be really underage? Maybe like fifteen. I don't know. Yeah, pretty gross, my dude. Uh, and they ended up having ten kids over the duration of their relationship. I feel like I did not. I don't know if this is an eighteen hundreds thing, but I did not see a lot of like detailed information about either his siblings or his children. So just throwing that out there. But they had ten kids. Uh, my guy talked a lot about it. Uh, there's a lot of letters and stuff that you can read from the children. Um, Catherine Hogart, she, or Catherine Dickens, as she would later be known as after this three-month period, um, she didn't speak out a lot, but she did have a collection of letters that she kept, 
And uh, when she was passing away uh, of cancer, I think is what she died of, um, she gave her collection of letters to her daughter and said, uh, let the world know that at one point Charles Dickens did love me. Oh. Like, that's how sour she was. Like, like she she was jilted and, and highly taken advantage of. And I know you got a lot to bring up about it. Well, we got to get there first. Okay. So, you know, I'm assuming they're happy back in the early 1830s or mid 1830s. Um, and at this time is when Charles starts publishing stories in serialized form, which we talk about all the time now. It was the shit back then. Um, his his first was the Pickwick Papers, which, again, were like kind of more funny. They were comic books. Yes, they were comics. Dude was a graphic novelist in the 1800s. Huh? That was pretty cool. I actually really liked it. Did somebody else do the art and then yeah. he wrote the captions? Yeah, he would he would write what they were and then they would draw them. Okay. So and, reverse order then. He would And write he it. was so critical of his first artist that it killed him. Literally killed him? Uh, <laughs> some most people are like, no, obviously he, so he hung himself or he killed himself somehow. Um and it was like it was right after Charles Dickens wrote him this long letter telling him how terrible of an artist he was and how he needed to do a better job. Oh my god. And so people are like, yeah, Charles Dickens killed a guy. Uh most people are like, no, he didn't. There, he I mean, was already dealing with a lot of problems. Um and he might not even read have read the letter. He might have read the letter. Um just depends on who which biographer is writing about it. Oh man. That is sad. Um, well, uh, see, this is fun. I like that that you're just kind of telling me a story. That I'm like, well, but there's a little more. Well, maybe that explains why uh, the later editions were more popular than the shitty artist was out of the picture. Yeah, I mean, Charles wasn't wrong. There, the guy wasn't the best, so he had some improving to do. Yeah, in general, um, the serial was not super popular until they got to the fourth installment. At that point, sales increased, I saw, from 400 a month to 40,000. Wow. So serialization worked really well for Charles um, because fans speculated about what would happen in the next installment, and they talked with friends, family, and acquaintances about the stories. So it really spread by word of mouth. Yeah. Also, I finally figured, because we talk about serialization all the time, and I was always like, I don't really get what the what the draw is that much because I like to read things all at once. Sure. But I guess back then it was more affordable. Mm. Um, to buy like short installments and also since they didn't have tv back then it was like it, it was, was like, like watching, watching your favorite tv show yeah, and then you talk about it with episode. everyone yeah um and again this goes back to what we talked about where it's instant gratification mm -hmm. he'd write something it'd get drawn printed and he had it in his hand and he'd be seeing people's reaction to it right and i mean this is one of his first like major projects so it that it even did moderately well is good for an author. Um, so around this point is where I think his work starts getting like a little bit more serious or like trying to tackle social issues. In a lot of his later novels and, and books, um, Dickens paints the Victorian era as dark, crude, dirty, dangerous. Um, it was at the height of the Industrial Revolution, which anyone who took high school history uh, probably learned a bit about that. Cheap labor was in high demand. That's why you saw so many like kids working child sure. labor yeah. that we would be absolutely horrified at now yeah um they also had the 1834 poor law yeah which was crazy it made it so anyone living on the streets could just be like swept up and taken to live in a workhouse which was basically a prison because 
they were unlikely to ever get out. Yeah. And I, I do think, uh, just a clarification, I feel like this is pre-Victorian era. Uh, I think that it leads, I I think that that it leads the... from, from industrial era into the Victorian era. I think it's like right before Victorian era. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I, I thought it was that. It could be. Uh, Victorian era, I think, starts in 37. So oh, okay. the poor law is before the Victorian yeah. era. Just a um, lot of a lot of his thought processes and what he brings to the table is pre-Victorian. Yes, so it's, develops before that. And I only know this because Rebecca has made me watch so many Victorian Albert remakes of their love story, and so like the dates are kind of in my head. And she's had to explain what they're saying to me all the time because I don't understand English when they talk. I don't understand English when they write. Sometimes it's okay. <laughs> this is also, by the way, I don't know if you were going to touch on this. This is also during like the birth of the the novel. Mm-hmm. Like, were you going to talk about that at all? I wasn't going to. Do you want to say that now? Well, yeah. So, like, we talked about uh, almost a year ago now. Uh, Jane Austen. Um, you know, she she started writing just after this time period. Um, where the novel was new, it was not a, it was not a, the sort of thing that people were like, oh yeah, so you can become a novelist and be <laughs> rich and make ten million dollars. It was like, it was like a comic book artist or a comic book writer. Like it was this weird thing. And Charles Dickens was on the front line of becoming a novelist, and so that's why, like, I, I think again, we're seeing like he. He never he didn't ever grow up going like, oh, I'm going to write novels. Right. Like that wasn't a thing. You write stage plays and you write you write these serials and, and you write articles and thesis. 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 Novels were not a thing yet. And I think you can see that in the style because reading Oliver Twist, it's not like a novel style like I would expect. It reads much more like a serial. Like, right. Every chapter is like its own little mini story, yeah. basically. Yeah. So, and then they just crammed enough of them together to be to novel be a length. Novel, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so the conditions of the time were really I mean, we talked about it with his childhood too, but even as a young man, the conditions that he was seeing in London um were really influential for him. He knew from his own life that good, hardworking people like his dad could fall on hard times. And he wanted to change people's attitudes about the poor and show them that it could happen to anyone uh, without feeling like he was lecturing them. Mm. So um, at age 25, this one's making me feel self-conscious because I'm now older than 25. (laughs) But at age 25, he published the serialized version of Oliver Twist, which is like... Okay, I was expecting Oliver Twist to be more delightful. I'd never read Dickens before, except you for like a Christmas. You were expecting it to be like the I thought cartoon, it was going to be fun. Like the Disney cartoon with the cat. Sure. Even though that movie starts out- Oliver and Company? Oliver and Company starts out movie. worse than fucking Up. <laughs> you want to cry at a movie, don't go watch Up. Watch the first five minutes of Oliver and <laughs> Company and tell me that you didn't cry, and then I'll tell you you're a heartless son of a bitch. I need to go back and rewatch it because I'm do, not remembering the so first five sad. minutes. It's so sad. As the owner- of two cats that we've rescued, mm. I legitimately cried while oh. watching the beginning of Oliver and Company. And Becca had to be like reassure me, like, it's going to be okay. Because I was like, yo, I just want to go find this cat and I want to <laughs> take it home. 
<laughs> okay, so I guess Tyler would have been prepared for Oliver Twist, but I was not. I was just like, this is not fucking fun. Like, this is so horrible. It's full of abuse yeah. and neglect and just awfulness. So mm-hmm. uh, not a fun read if that's what you're looking for this Christmas season. Um, but at one point during his early career, uh, Dickens visited an orphanage to do some research. This is kind of a theme of his. He actually like went there because they didn't have the internet back then to do research. Yep. Um, and he went to an orphanage about after hearing about the abuse of some boys there. That trip would inspire Nicholas Nickleby later on. He also, around this time, visited asylums, which were kind of abused back then, too. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you want to get rid of your wife, send her to an asylum. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. (laughs) Foreshadowing. (laughs) Um, But even though he was, like, wanting to spotlight political issues, he was also known for including heartwarming scenes and moral lessons, like in the classic A Christmas Carol. So he was kind of a well-rounded writer, I guess. Dark humor. Yeah. Humor, humor, Regular, heartwarming yeah. scenes, and po- politics. So, and he had morals. Yes, for his stories, he didn't have. I guess he had morals. He, he just he was known for having them publicly, and I think he did too. I think he had morals. I just think that they were screwed up sometimes. Yes. <laughs> um, so getting into what you alluded to earlier, um, in the early 1840s, Charles and Catherine traveled to the United States to give. What I read the term was was public meetings on his works. I interpreted that as like he gave readings and like lectures about them. Uh, I think that's just what they were called back then. Um, And he spoke to sold out theaters because, like you said, attendees loved his passion and would say well after his death how no other performances rivaled that of the author. Yeah. Which is understandable with his theater background. Um, And I think that's something that not a lot of authors have both skill sets. Like some authors, you'll love their words, but they're kind of awkward. Yeah. So. It's hard to it's hard to listen to them read because it's because they're not good readers. They're not good readers. At least not out loud. Um, this is around the same time as as Mark Twain, right? Yes. Uh, so Mark Twain also another one who did really well at like performing yeah. his own works. Um, and I think I saw somewhere that like they they were compared to each other because they were the only two that were kind of doing it. Yeah. But Mark Twain um, acknowledged he was like, oh, Dickens perfected it before I did. Yeah. Like, he got there first. Well, yeah, because he's older, for sure. Um, but, but yeah, I, I it's something that I, I could see people being like, yeah, these two guys. Mark Twain is like the British, or the American Charles Dickens. No. I think that Mark Twain had, I think he stuck to his morality a little bit more than Charles did. We keep talking about this. We need to get to it. We need to get to the morale. Okay, so also in the 40s, um, Charles lived abroad a little bit. He lived in Italy, Switzerland, and France. Not sure why, but, you know, it was there on the info sheet. Yeah. I I guess he was a real Francophile, which means obsessed with France. So that probably explains that. No idea. When he returned to London, he did a cool thing and founded Urania Cottage, which was a home for homeless women. Was it cool, though? Was it cool, Hannah? Did your biography have a different story? I, I'm letting we got to get through his life because there's <laughs> I have a story to go along with the Urania College or a cottage, so I'll we'll, we'll come back to this for sure. Wait, do we have to? Because all I was going to say is that the residents came from prisons, workhouses, and the streets. Because back then, if it you was, were a woman, it, it was cool. It was cool what this did. We'll come back. Okay. Pin in that one. So the people who lived there included prostitutes, homeless teenagers, and petty thieves. Um, they were taught skills that would help them get jobs not as prostitutes and petty thieves later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dickens would interview them to learn their life stories, which influenced future works. Yeah. 
So yeah, he basically got free material out of it. Well, he founded it. So sure. I don't. I would have judged him more if he was just like stopping and interviewing homeless people on the streets, stealing their stories, and then and doing then nothing for yeah, them. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's kind of BS. At least like they got so food one and one life quick skills. story from that is that there was a girl who was very much um, a um, like a like a wild child sort of very stubborn and all that and um people would escape from this because while the cottage was still a good place it was still a prison technically um so people would escape on sundays because they were allowed to wear nice clothes on sundays and so they just like walk out so they'd like jump over the fence and then they join churches and parades and things and and be out and at one point uh one of the girls threatened to do this and so Charles is like, you know what? Fine, go put her out on the streets and let her let her be out on the street where it's cold and she's got no food and no clothes, sort of thing. And so they put her out there, and she like freaked the fuck out and realized that she needs this place. And when they wouldn't let her back in, she like freaked out even more. And then eventually they brought her back in, and uh, and she kind of calmed calmed down and realized how much good this place was doing. She ended up moving to like Canada and having, you know, she had a husband and a, and a family and you know lived her life. She had a she had a good life afterwards. And Charles got a character that he put into a book, uh, who had the almost the exact same like freak out over that sort of situation that he put in into the story. So there's yeah there was good that came out of it, and he also got a lot of material out of it as well. Moving on, because there's another story that I'll come back to. Okay. Well, um, I didn't see a whole lot about the eight, like early 1850s. I do know that Dickens suffered two huge losses in his family. Uh, his daughter died, and so did his father around the same time. Yeah. So two big family losses. Yeah. Um, one good thing that happened was in 1856, he learned that Gads Hill Place, that mansion his father had pointed out when he was a kid, was up for sale. He bought it initially with plans to rent it out for, like, events and stuff, but then he fell in love with it and kept it as his country home. Mm -hmm. Back to the sad news. He was starting to get really unhappy in his marriage. Yep. Divorce, taboo, slash not legal at the time. Um, and since Dickens... And, and so this is why I know that it, that the, it was pre-Victorian, because Victorian era, there was a huge uprise in divorce. Mm. Just another quick little thing. Gotcha. Um... Also, the conflict was that Dickens had become known as a figure of morality Mm -hmm. um, from his writings and stuff. So he was in a tough spot there. So he spent a lot of time throwing extravagant parties at Gad's Hill. Um, And then in 1857, he met a young actress by the name of Ellen Nellie Turnin while both were performing in a play. He was 45. She was 18. Yep. Yep. They started a secret affair. Yep. Um, and I don't know if your biography had a lot of information. What I could find was that to this day, details remain scarce because it seems like um, both of them destroyed a lot of their correspondence to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the things that I was reading are not like 100% certain this is what happened. Right. Um, but they're just people's best guess. Uh, I don't know if he ever mentioned that things were very much confirmed, but he, he definitely made it sound as though like as things have come out, we've seen... We've seen that this is the pattern and, and what was actually happening. Yeah. So I, I, I can believe a lot of it. And, uh, and you know, with with everybody writing everything all the time back in the 1800s because they had nothing else to do. 
you can develop a lot of like hindsight is 2020 right and it's 2020 now it lots is lots of Whoa. hindsight god why have we not been taking more advantage of that 2020 hindsight? because we just want to get the fuck through it yeah we're like we want 2021 <laughs> vision we want 2020 in the hindsight <laughs> exactly nailed it um so the year after he met Ellen, he separated from Catherine, stayed legally married, um, but they were living apart. And I saw that, like, she took one kid with her and left the rest with, like, her sister or something. Yeah. Which seemed weird and probably explains why they weren't super close with their dad later on. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Um, Charles tried to get a divorce by claiming that his wife was mentally ill. Yeah. An action that was um, only really revealed last year, I thought, um, because there were some letters that a historian found from a former neighbor of the Dickens to a friend. Yeah. Um, Catherine, I guess, had confided in the neighbor the year she died. Um, And one of the most damning letters uh, the neighbor wrote that Charles discovered at last that she, Catherine, had outgrown his liking. She had borne 10 children and had lost many of her good looks, was growing old. Uh, And he even tried to shut her up in a lunatic asylum. Poor thing. But bad as the law is in regard to proof of insanity, he could not quite rest it to his purpose. Hmm. So I was reading that, like, the discovery of the letters was somewhat controversial in scholarly circles because some people didn't think Dickens, often thought of, again, as a very moral figure, would lie about that. They thought um, Catherine maybe really was ill. Yeah. I think it's bullshit. You think that he was? Just I think trying to he get was just trying up. to get rid of her because it's one of the few ways that he can justify divorce. Divorce. Yeah. Yeah, which seems really messed up because he'd been to asylums. Yeah. And he knew, knew what they would do. Yeah, and and he had helped his friend do the exact same thing. Really. To his wife. Yeah. So like he had a doctor friend who would just kind of pres- prescribe wife goes to lunacy. Like that, like it was a thing that they would do for each other. It was a boys' club that they would do. You're like, okay, your wife is overweight now because you made her have ten kids, and you want to date I, a I teenager. I guess I, I can't stand it anymore. I got to talk about some of this shit. Because do the thing. Let, let's back up. All right. He has he has such a, a weird way of dealing with the world around him, and it's hypocritical and it's um, convoluted, contradicting. Um, Con Air. I couldn't think of a third con, but I really wanted to <laughs> Nick keep Cage. that. <laughs> Nick Cage plays Charles Dickens. Um, oh. I would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, going back to the, the Urania, Urania College, Cottage, son of a bitch. <laughs> it might have been college. Cottage of you. Um, so there's a story where uh, there had been something enacted where you were not allowed to curse in public. And it was like, it was kind of one of those laws where it was like, it was a law, but nobody really follows it that much. And, um, and at one point, um, Charles is walking down the street and he sees a a lady hanging out with some boys and she's just cursing up a storm. Right. So already this is a big deal because ladies usually didn't curse like men would. Right. Then on top of it, she's in public. Right. So uh, and and Charles and they start cursing towards Charles and he loses his shit. He goes and gets a police officer and he's like, I want you to arrest her. I want to press charges. What a narc. Right. And then uh, 
during this whole ordeal, I can't remember if they went to trial or not, but during the whole, whole ordeal, he like goes to his home. He has a copy of the legislature that says, you know, that's not, you're not allowed to curse in public. So he had already been reading about it. He had already been like thinking about it or something. And this comes to light. He brings it in and he's like, I want her charged and I want her sent to the Urania College. Cottage. Fuck. So, <laughs> Like, so that we can take care of her. Like, this is really weird. This is a weird action. Is it immoral? No, because he's following he's he's following the law to a T. And he would tell his friends that he always wanted to be a police officer. That's something that Charles Dickens always wanted to be. He wanted to be a cop. And he saw himself in another life being, like, the magistrate of law that would just walk around town and and, like, lock people up. Because they were doing bad things. And that's how he would walk around a lot of times. He would be like looking at people and seeing the bad shit that they would do and figuring out how to lock them up. Again, knowing what it was like in prison. Yeah, and kind of antithetical to his whole like, I want to show working class people how bad the poor have it. Right, right. So it's super weird. He wants to help. But then also he views himself as higher than everybody else, right? So that's already weird. Um, On top of the fact that a lot of people, when they started figuring, finding out about this story, they were like, yo, that's super ridiculous because they would go to his house for dinner. They would hang out with him and his family and he would curse his wife out like crazy. He hated his wife. It wasn't a matter of that. He didn't love her anymore. He hated her. And for a few different reasons, a lot of people think, one, that he hated his mother because she didn't act the way that he expected a mother should, um, which I totally get. I'm not like, oh, you should hate your mom if she's not great. But I get where he's coming from. Like, you you expect certain things out of your parents. But he held on to that hate so much that he started, when his mother died, all of that hate just transferred over to his wife, who now has borne him nine children. She is not kept up well. And a thing about Charles Dickens is he liked what they called their his pocket princesses. Little girls. That sounds so gross. He liked little girls. Little skinny little little girls is what he liked. And he would write about them in his works. Little Dorrit is just basically fanfic of, of this girl, this perfect girl that he would want. And then like not even a month or, or sometime later, he meets Nellie. Right. So so he hates his wife. She's born him children. She has not kept up her appearance. She's grown old and fat and she's just not what he wants anymore. And he and he can't hate and he can't hate his mom anymore. So he hates her. And then he writes about his perfect woman. And then all of a sudden Nellie shows up in his life, a theatrical woman, a little pocket princess for him. And he starts to fuck her. Because it's more convenient. Because he sees himself as better than everybody else. He sees himself above his own laws. Right. Or or rather, he sees himself as the one who can interpret the laws and apply them where he deems um, it best. But never at him, himself. And, 
and I and I start to really wonder where does the charity stuff come from that we see in Christmas Carol that's going to come up? Where do we see the the charity that he he himself does? Like he did start the cottage. He he wanted to help people, and and he went out of his way to try and help people. Um, you know, and, and he'd give money and and he'd go out and do performances for for charity and stuff. Um, and he would try to be kind to people. Um, but then at the same time, he didn't hold himself to the same standards as everybody else was expected. And I don't think that's entirely like unique. I think we do see that a lot. And there's that famous quote that I'm totally going to bastardize here, but about like, there's nothing more dangerous than someone who thinks they know what's good for you. Oh yeah. 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 So it's like, I think it's more common than we like to admit, or that you see in, you know, while something is happening that the person who thinks that they're so moral and they are doing so many good things for society is also kind of a shit person. Basically, Charles Dickens was a Karen. Oh, fucking Charles. What's it, the male equivalent of a Karen? I think it's I've a Chad. Heard, I've heard a lot of different stuff. Wrong. Chad or Kevin's. Kevin? That's another one I've heard. He can be a, or you could just be a Charles, he's I guess. He's just a Charles. He's just a Dickens. He's just a Dickens. Um no, so, I think so that was that was a lot of a lot of stuff I've been holding on to uh, while you've been getting through your stuff. I I've think it was well placed. Thank you. R.I.P. Charles and Catherine. Catherine deserved better. Yeah. So again, Catherine was jilted. She was uh, really, really um, dumped on, and to a point where like she was not allowed to see her children. Um, she at one point the children, I think one or two of her daughters would go to this place to go learn to play piano across the street is where Catherine lived and every day she would sit at her window and watch them go in and wait for the day that they would cross the street and come knock on their on her door just to say hi and they never did because he forbade them from ever talking to her he and then he would like gaslight the whole situation and if somebody disagreed or called him out on the way that he treated her and if if he if they disagreed with him being the moral upstanding person in the relationship he would gaslight them and he would cut them off like he was it was it's scary how much of a like egocentric person he was especially during the separation that he had with Catherine well especially back in the days where you could do a lot more damage with that attitude yeah. like she is actually very lucky she didn't end up in an asylum and then to pile to pile on you brought up the sister georgiana george yeah i Georgiana. just saw that like almost all of the kids went with we're the gonna sister. call her sister george because i can't remember if it's georgiana or georgia george sister george uh the kids went with her because she sided with dickens oh. and a lot of people were like yo were they lovers because she was all about him she was like like hey he's a good guy and everything that he does is correct and my sister is an insane person who should never be allowed to see these children right she would always write about how wonderful he is people are like yo were they you know doing it and everybody's like people are like no he liked nelly like that's who he wanted to be with so there's some discussion there of whether they were getting it on or not but she stood by him uh, as people were like, yeah, basically she took the place as his wife. Damn. Because she would do everything for him at that point once God. he got rid of Catherine. Like take care of the children. What a shitty situation. Right? Right? Yeah. 
Oh. It's like we're talking about our friend's divorce or something. Yeah. Like like it's <laughs> that happened it's 200 just years like ago. yeah. It's just like that. Can you believe? I'm on Catherine's side here. Can you believe that Georgiana would tr- would side with Charles? <laughs> oh my god. Well, back to the Ellen situation. He he did continue his relationship with her for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he bought her a house outside London. Uh, they did have a baby, I read, but it died in infancy, so they didn't have like their Some own. Some people family think together. they had two kids, and neither <gasps> of them died in infancy. What? Yeah, this goes back to that whole. Uh, we don't really know what happened there. Yeah, situation. They were very covert with their relationship, like yes. very covert. It, it's not one of those situations where people found out and then it was all over. Like people didn't know at all until people started dying and going through other people's diaries. Yeah. So. Which I don't know. That probably sucked for Ellen because, like, you meet the man, quote unquote, of your dreams, and then he just hides you away in a secret house and comes and sees you. She got a free house out of it. She got she got taken care of for the rest of her life. I would rather have love, Tyler. She got love. She got fucked all the time, man. Love. Love is only an hour away. He specifically bought her a house that was only an hour's train ride from him. All she has to do is send a little note, a little booty call, and he's gonna come running. <laughs> Yeah, like two days later, or however the post works back then. <laughs> um, Do this, child. Weirdly, are they... you up? <laughs> Gross. <laughs> DTF. <laughs> Yours truly, Nelly. P.S. Pick up Mountain Dew on the way. <laughs> Netflix and chill. Netflix and chill. Reading by candlelight and chill. Is that the equivalent? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, weirdly, they did somehow travel together during their secret relationship because there's the train story um, from 1865. Charles and Ellen were in a train crash where their car ended up literally dangling over the river. Um, and so I was reading that he jumped in the river to try to be the hero and like help passengers. Uh, it didn't seem like he helped that many, mostly just like held them as they died, which is very Titanic-y. Um, but then like while that was all wrapping up, he realized his manuscript for his book, uh, Our Mutual Friend was still in the train car. So he like risked his life to skedaddle back up into the (laughs) dangling train car and get it, which is like. A very, very committed author, I guess. I I would probably get it. I probably would, too. There's no copy. Like, right. You got to get that shit. You don't got a carbon copy, copy at that point. Um, But for the rest of his life, he would be anxious about traveling, especially by train, which is totally understandable. Yeah. Um, And it severely impacted his health. Um, many acquaintances said that he was more frail and suffered from really bad nerves after the accident. Um, but that didn't stop him from about two years later going on another tour in the United States. And I saw that he was offered the equivalent of about $1 million for that speaking tour. Was he really? So he was like making bank. Yeah. And I mean, so many of the authors that we talk about don't really get famous in their lifetime or like get famous toward the end of their life. Dickens was really lucky that even from his like early-ish 20s, yeah. he was pretty popular man maybe that's the thing that i need to do maybe i need to figure out how to write and then like go read my writing in public and like make a spectacle of it yes like it sounds like that's the way to make money you'll get internet because you famous. only get paid really you only get paid once for writing a book right you yes. get you get maybe your advancement and then you get whatever contract royalty stuff that's going to come in unless you do like the frank herbert thing and sell like the paperback version to a different publishing right you can company. you can still make a ton of money one time off of a book but you're not going to make a lot of money over and over and over again 
But you write a book, you make all that money, and then you go on a speaking tour where you read the book and people are like, it's selling out. Like, man, that's- They buy tickets. Of course, they didn't have Billie Eilish back then. So yeah, they didn't have you don't, You didn't have any competition. <laughs> well, good concert. They had like classical- I need to get Billie Eilish to partner with me. Oh. And then I'll read my books while she sings her music. And does like weird dance- yeah. Music video and then things. she has like she has like blood coming out of her eyes and stuff. Perfect. This is how you make your first million. Billy Eilish. <laughs> hit me up. I'm finally ready to talk. So um <laughs> when when he got back from the tour, he, he was like pretty pretty bad off in health terms. Um and so the rest of his life was there wasn't a whole lot more. I mean, he did write some of some of his pretty well known uh works in the late sixties or early to late sixties. Eighteen sixties. I yeah. just want to make sure people do. Yeah. Not, you know, hippie era Beatles yeah. 18 or 1960s. No, the 1860s. Um, and then all I've got after that is, is his death. Um, he yeah. died from a stroke on June 9th, 1870 at Gad's Hill Place. So, you yeah. know, in one of the places he loved most. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 58, which I feel like is pretty decently old for the 1800s yeah man almost twice the life expectancy yeah considering he was like working in a blacking factory at age 12 i'm sure he didn't eat well and he's going swimming in some some cold water to help people die yep um (laughs) he was buried in poet's corner at westminster abbey um, which actually went against his will he asked for a quiet burial in rochester which is like by where he grew up mm-hmm. um, in the countryside. So they they broke his will to bury him there. Thousands of fans and other mourners came to pay their respects. It was something like they put so many flowers that you couldn't see his body anymore. Jeez. Um, yeah. So yeah, he he died famous. He lived famous. Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully better than. Uh, Was he though? Uh, That's the thing. Oh. Special permission to Mary Catherine. <laughs> No comment on that one. <laughs> um, and then the only other thing I have is that he left an unfinished novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Yeah. So always finish your novels before you die, folks. Listen, if you're writing a book, don't fucking die. Jesus. Don't die. Just Or at least don't. write the ending. If you're like getting up there in the years, yeah. write the ending first. Learn your limitations, everyone. Write the end first. <laughs> and like, then. Yeah, start with dessert and then eat your dinner because you never know yeah. how much time you got write left. Write the <laughs> end. Write the beginning. Let your stepson write the rest when you die. <laughs> Perfect. But yeah, so that's our, our man, Charles Dickens. And I mean, I, I can't believe I never read any of his works in high school because when I was reading like the full list of his novels or I guess books because novels were still very new, mm-hmm. um, it's like he hit it out of the ballpark pretty much every single time. Like he yeah. had... Oliver Twist, A Christmas Carol, David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations. Mm-hmm. Like he published more than a dozen full-length books and so many of them are like part of teaching curriculums today. Yeah. 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 So, I think that's why I know we have some squabbles on the the start dates of the Victorian era, but I see all the time he's considered like the most important author of the Victorian era. You can be Without having lived in the Victorian era. Well, he still lived in the Victorian era. Did he, he didn't though? die until 1870. Did he, though? <laughs> Did he? <laughs> he was there for like 30 years of the Victorian era. He showed up. He showed up for sure. Um, yeah. And so I think that's a good, you know, that's a good place to stop because we, we can, we're, we are going to go into the Christmas Carol um, a lot more. Probably talk about some of the 
bullshit morals that he put into it and then didn't really yeah i take it back he he did live by a lot of morality so um i think that it still justifies christmas carol um but the christmas carol had a huge impact on people and on the world as we are today mm-hmm. like there's a movie that i i saw called the man who invented christmas about charles dickens and i was like oh that sounds dumb but after listening to this audiobook I fully understand what they meant by it. It's it's insane what he did for for Christmas um, and how we celebrate it. So um, that is our small teaser into the next episode. I'm excited for it. Are you? I am. Well, I'm excited because we're also going to do a little gift exchange. I'm very excited for that. I'm quite pleased with what I've come up with, which I was not expecting to be pleased with. I'm, I'm excited. I've got a couple things for you. I'm excited about one specific thing that's probably the least gifty thing in it. So it's gonna be weird. I can't. I can't <laughs> wait to show you. I'm really excited about it. Um, it uh, yeah, it'll be fun. So we're gonna talk about Christmas Carol, and we're gonna give some gifts to each other. Perfect. Uh, so that was our teaser for the next episode. Um, Tyler, where can they find us? In the uh, meantime, they can find us down at the um, at the, the debtors at the debtors prison. <laughs> Uh, no, you guys can find us um, at Lewis and Lovecraft uh, pretty much everywhere. So Instagram is at Lewis and Lovecraft, Facebook.com slash Lewis and Lovecraft. And you can email us, Lewis and Lovecraft at gmail.com. And you can visit our website, Lewis and Lovecraft.com, uh, where you can see a bunch of old pictures of us, which maybe we'll update someday soon. We may try. Make it our resolution. <laughs> um, and as always, we want to thank Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. He does a whole lot of cool work in a lot of different genres, so be sure to check out his um, page at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson. That's B as in boy, A-S-S-E-N. Hey, if you guys want to give us a, a Christmas gift, I am willing to accept that Christmas gift. Remember, charity is a big part of the season, so be charitable. Give us a gift. Subscribe, please. It costs you nothing, and it, it costs gives us nothing. everything. If you subscribe and you send us a picture of you subscribed to our email, lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com, I will read your name on our next episode. Huh? Perfect. Do it. We're going to have like one person do that. <laughs> uh, well, if you rate and review us on iTunes, I'll do you one better and send you a sticker with our logo. Oh, shit. That's actually a cool one. Yeah. So do that. Uh, bury that. If you leave a review for realsies, we're not joking. We have stickers. We have stickers. We do everybody. have stickers. If you leave a review for us, send us a picture of it and uh, and Hannah will send you a sticker. Yay. Between bribery yeah we gotta bribe people we got to it's the season of giving um, and receiving and hannah what's what's the best gift someone could give this season the best gift you can give to us and to other people yep is to tell other people about our about show. this show yeah. yes it's wrap it up put it just scream it into a box. Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Close the box up real fast. Wrap it up. And then when they open it, it'll just come blasting out of there. And then they'll they'll know what to go look up at and Google. Be like, hey, how come I just got hit in the face with Between Lewis and Lovecraft for Christmas? And it's a doubly good gift because, you know, you'll be giving it to them like a year and a half into our show. So they'll have so many episodes to catch up on. Yeah. Go, ch- go, 
go tell them about our show. Um, and also remember, as you guys are going out and hanging out with family, maybe virtually or, you know, in reality, because a lot of people are like, fuck COVID and all of that. So you're just going to go out and do it, which I get. Use our show to sound super cool. Like, talk about this stuff. And then when people are like, oh, where'd you learn that? Be like, oh, I learned it from Between Lewis and Lovecraft, where Hannah does a bunch of work to tell us a bunch of stuff, <laughs> and then Tyler just makes fun of it the whole time. Hey, you came in strong with the Dickens knowledge today. I did. I so did, I everybody, did when you're hanging out with people for Christmas, when Charles Dickens comes up, just be like, hey, that dude was kind of a douchebag, and he here's why. kind of a douchebag, but he did open up a, a cottage for young women to live in. Yep. And then he tried to force them to live there <laughs> when they would curse. This sounds like another plot <laughs> for another different kind of novel. All right, guys, and with that, we're going to say goodbye and remember that Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt the register of the burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change. Do you want me to keep going? I'll just read the whole book. Oh, yeah. I got chips.